You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 18th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. Iran finds new ways to lose friends and irritate people. The Republican Party continues rolling the pitch for post-midterm result denials. And Australia reignites the row over recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Murray LeConte and Lou Lukens will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll have a report from Washington DC on the economic questions which may tip the looming midterm elections. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by the political journalist and author Marie LeConte, and by Lou Lukens, senior partner at Signum Global and former U.S. diplomat. Hello to you both. Hi. Good afternoon. Um, uh, for the light introductory banter component, I do know from our exhaustive pre-show preparations that there, there is a, a motif, a theme, if you will, of recent travel to previously unvisited European cities. I think I got all that right. Um, Mari, you have been to Barcelona. Did you like it? I really enjoyed it. Turns out it is not, in fact, overrated, as I assumed it was. <laughs> um, very lovely place. I ate very well. My, I had one goal for this holiday, which was to eat as much hamon as possible. Possible. Um, a, I had a worthy with, ambition. It was. I had it at every meal, including breakfast, and I also had some hamon flavoured crisps as a snack. Hamon flavoured crisps are a thing now. They're quite good. Are they amazing? No, they're not, but they're quite good. <laughs> uh, Lou, you have been to Amsterdam. I went to Amsterdam. Had never been before. How Loved is that? It. How is that possible? I, I, I don't know. I've been to the Hague, but I'd never been to Amsterdam. Um, I found it completely charming and and accessible and just lovely to walk around the canals and the looking at the houses and, and great food as well. Um, had a wonderful time. See, as as listeners to the foreign desk uh, and who isn't will be aware, I was recently in Warsaw, but that doesn't help us maintain uh, the role we're on because it wasn't my first time there. I'd been there at least twice before, in fact. But what I did like about Warsaw was a thing that I do like about Amsterdam. I don't know if it's true of Barcelona because that would be a whole other recurring theme. I like the fact, and I can see the arguments against it, but I like the fact that in Warsaw and Amsterdam they go for the very low-lit streets at night thing in the old parts of town. I do see the arguments against it, but it is also quite nice. Well, just just as long as you keep your wits about you as you're walking down those dark streets, I think it's fine. Where, where are they on this in Barcelona? Uh, well, so I was annoyingly staying in a, in, in an actually a very nice Airbnb, but sadly on a very much major road. So I, I did not really see, <laughs> you know, anything or like didn't really sleep because of the noise. So no, I, I could not tell you, I'm afraid. Well, we will start today's show proper with Iran, which finds itself under renewed sanctions and the threat of still further sanctions, which all in itself suggests the remarkable prospect that there are still thing, much things left in Iran that have not already been sanctioned. Some of the new sanctions, specifically those 
imposed by the EU pertain to Iran's crackdown on protests by people who think assault by employees of the state is an unfair response to female hair blowing unveiled. Others, however, might be looming in response to Iran's supplying of Russia with the Shahed-136 drones recently dropped upon civilian targets in Ukraine. Um, Lou, first of all, the United States, France and the United Kingdom all now agree that Iran is in breach of UN Security Council Resolution 2231, which relates to the nuclear deal and, at least as I understood it, restricts uh, Iran's right to distribute certain ballistic technology outside its own borders. Um, What do you think? Has Iran breached this resolution? And if so, then what? Well, I think they have. And even worse from a U.S. perspective is that they're providing this weaponry to the Russians to use against Ukraine. So sort of a double whammy as far as the United Mm. States is concerned, I think, when it comes to Iran exporting this, this drone technology to Russia. Um, Murray, uh, Iran, as is customary, denies everything, which is something they do have in common with Russia. Are we taking seriously those denials of involvement? Um, no, I believe we do not. I, I, I'm yet to see one person saying, hang on, let's hear them out on this. Actually, you know, let, let, let's really finish their investigation first and then see who was right. Um, is it possible to glean, Lou, what Iran thinks it's doing here? I mean, it, Russia seems like a curious choice of ally to pick just at the moment. I, I suspect much of Iran's decision is driven by the need for cash. I'm sure Iran, uh, Russia is paying cash for this weaponry, and, and Iran needs money. They, they, they're, they've been under these sanctions for years. The economy is in terrible shape. The government is in desperate need of money, and this is a way for them to get some. But just to follow that up, Lou, is it a untowardly simplistic analysis to suggest that if what Iran needs is money, and I'm sure that's true, then what Iran should probably do is maybe try to make some sort of effort to refloat that nuclear deal in order that the sanctions might be lifted? Well, they should. I mean, that would, that would give them the ability to export you know, probably up to a million barrels of oil a day, which would be certainly a reliable cash stream for them. Um, I'm a little bit mystified by why Iran seems so determined to not rejoin this deal. Um, But as we've seen, this is a a regime there that's very hard to understand. And I think when we try to put our frame of reference and and understand their decision-making process, there's a disconnect there. Um, Murray, there is a sort of alliance that seems to be rising, or at least seems to me to be rising, this kind, I mean, if you could call it an alliance, it's not really an alliance of choice, but this kind of conclave of the otherwise largely, and indeed deservedly friendless, um, Russia, Syria, North Korea, Iran, Belarus, and Eritrea, uh, Mm. all now sticking up for each other, taking each other's side at the UN, that sort of thing. Do they actually have anything else going on in common besides the fact that they've just irritated the entire rest of the planet. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. You know that that coalition uh, can really go anywhere. I do think what's interesting is that in a different world there could have been a, a world basically where India, for example, could have said actually, like you know, well, we're making friends with Russia, etc. We know from the recent conference that Modi is clearly very unhappy with Putin, for example. So I think that sort of again group of countries, as long as they do not manage to somehow befriend one of the really big powers that are not currently sort of aligned to the West, do not pose, I think, any major headaches on the international stage. I mean, Lou, there is this, there's two things going on this week, at least, which is everybody's upset with Iran for suppressing the protests which are ongoing since the death last month of a young woman in the custody of the so-called morality police. And now there's this thing involving the shipment of drones to Iran. Is there any 
any indication at all that there is there is joined up thinking going on here between the Iranians that they are trying to maybe create some sort of a diversion? I mean, they could be. I mean, in my mind, it's even more likely than that. It's just a regime which is increasingly desperate, increasingly isolated on the world stage, um, increasingly under pressure from from domestic social protests and movements. And I think, yeah, we'll try to distract by doing whatever it can, but also, as I said, desperately needs the cash. Um, and Mari, just finally, before we move on, on the ongoing protests, which have now been going on for... Uh, more than a month, um, despite uh, fairly uncompromising responses by the Iranian authorities. Are, are you surprised that they are still ongoing? And at what point do you think they reach a point at which they do acquire an irresistible momentum? We did talk about this a bit on the Daily last night, and it, it is it is still very hard to know, isn't it, where on the spectrum this currently is between previous Iranian protests, which have been crushed uh, eventually and something like the Arab Spring which didn't initially look like it was much of a thing but ended up becoming a very big thing. Mm. And I mean it's, it's been fascinating to follow because I think the last time I was here actually we talked about the kind of early days of the protest and saying you know at the moment it, it feels quite leaderless it's not entirely sure where it's going as a protest movement and either they manage to organize themselves quite soon or they will be crushed and that'll be the end of that and actually neither kind of happened in the end because they are still i think somewhat unclear in their very sort of like specific aims and they don't really have figureheads in the way that successful protest movements tend to have and yet they're still going so i think at this stage i i, I have no idea because i did not see this lasting that long in that form so i am not sure what's coming but yeah, i'm certainly surprised by the fact that it's still going. Well, let's look now at the United States, the imminent midterm elections of which look increasingly set to at least distract the world from laughing at the United Kingdom for a period. It is increasingly clear that the Republican Party's strategy for these elections is to pile all in on the crazy, fielding an astonishing raft of crackpots, dingbats, foil hatters and weirdos, many of whom are subscribers to former President Donald Trump's fantasies of a stolen 2020 election, and some of whom are are bracingly upfront about their own intention to steal this election and indeed all subsequent elections. Um, Lou, first of all, let, let's start with the big thunderclap shrouded existential question first. As a citizen of the United States and therefore sitting at this table answerable for literally everything America does, um, are you actually concerned about the long-term prospects of American democracy? I am. I am. And I think there are some, as you said, some election deniers who are up for seats this this next month in the midterm elections, um, who will then, if they win, be in a position to possibly change or alter the outcome of the election two years from now, so the presidential race. Um, and I think it, it's an incredibly dangerous moment in American politics, and there are lots of really great people who are aware of that and are trying to do what they can to, uh, to, to set up systems and checks and balances to prevent election deniers from, from, A, from coming into office, but B, if they come into office, from being able to sort of change the results according to their own personal whim. Um, but I think the next couple of years are, are a tricky time for U.S. politics. Mari, um, it's not necessarily just an American question. Uh, it, it occurs to me that this is a, a crisis across a great many democracies. When you look at turnout in U.S. elections, um, even in presidential elections as divisive as the last two, I'm my mind is always blown by how low it is. That you know, up to a third of American voters simply cannot be bothered. Um, in midterms, that number is even higher. 
how and why is it do you think we got to the point where not only are there threats to democracy of the of the type that Lou was just delineating but actually quite startling numbers of citizens of those democracies don't appear all that bothered um oh, that's an interesting question well i think one the slightly optimistic view would be that actually it is probably quite heartening that a lot of those non-voters are not being, you know, actually were not turned off by politics because they didn't like traditional politics and have started voting because all the lunatics have turned up. I think that is actually something to be celebrated because that was not uh, necessarily a given. But I mean, yes, but then it isn't the problem. I think Obama, I suppose, like famously did manage to galvanise, I think, quite a lot of people who do not traditionally vote. I'm not sure anyone is kind of doing that now. So, so, so the, the problem is, how do you reach those people, I think? Because um, these are people quite often who do not, obviously, read the newspapers, who probably do not follow current affairs in any way, shape or form, even on social media. So it's even, you know, how do you get to those people? And that's, again, I think Britain, I think Jeremy Corbyn tried that when he was at the helm of the Labour Party, where they said, you know, we, we will target the people who do not usually vote and we will get them and that's how we'll ride to victory which did not quite happen in the end. So, so it, it does feel like people kind of trying to reinvent the wheel, I think, every few years by saying we will get those people interested in politics. That Non-voters don't vote. That's um, an annoying uh, thing, but a there, true there, thing There's a clue in the description of them. Exactly. Yeah. It's more of a status than an action. Um, Lou, the, one of the difficulties here is that one side here does have that charismatic rallying figurehead, uh, which is former President Donald Trump. Um, what does it tell us, do you think, that people who we previously would have thought of six or seven years ago as moderate, even sensible Republicans, the likes of Lindsey Graham, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Elise Stefanik, J.D. Vance, now all Kool-Aid-swigging Trumpists. Have they had a genuine change of heart or have they just realised, I can't get elected otherwise? I think it's the latter. I mean, I think it, I think it, there's a much more cynical angle to it. I don't think that people like Lindsey Graham believe that Donald Trump won the last election. I don't think they actually even like Donald Trump, but but the system in America, Donald Trump has such power over the core base of about 30% of the Republican Party who w- would follow him to the ends of the earth that for a Republican politician now to stand up against Trump is, is extremely career-threatening. So these Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham and these guys, they they they, they preach the, the, the Trump, you know, message, um, in a very cynical ploy to stay in in his good graces so that they can stay in power. I mean, attempting to diagnose the the psychological uh, disintegration of the Republican Party has been a, a, a hobby for a great many people over the last few years. But just to follow that up, Lou, do you think there is any way back from this? Uh, or at least in the near term, do we have to stop thinking of people like uh, the Congresswoman Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene as eccentric outliers and start appreciating that, no, they are the mainstream of the Republican Party now. It is now their party. It is their party. And in fact, even more than that, when the Republicans take control of the House of Representatives, which I think they are likely to do next month in the, after the midterms, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, is going to be elevated to some very important committees in Congress. She's not on any committees right now because she is such a wingnut. <laughs> but she will be promoted to some of these you know, judiciary and oversight and some really important committees where she will have a platform to, to make a lot of trouble for the Biden White House. Um, which I think is a symbolizes the fact that she is becoming more of a mainstream, or the party is shifting toward her. Yeah, so I always find that kind of quite coolly fascinating because how there is such a thin line between saying actually, you know, as you said, Andrew, like these are just the people who are in the mainstream now, but also at the same time not 
ending up, I think, normalizing entirely behavior like this and beliefs like this. And it's not it's not clear to me that I think the US or anywhere else really has managed to strike that line of actually, again, saying, you know, these are wing nuts. But also we do have to recognize that they're there. And, you know, we, we can't be in denial about this. And I think that'll be quite an interesting thing to watch, at least um, over the next few years. I mean, has anything that you've seen or any body that you've seen in the last few years in, in the United States, Lou, there's a question I want to come back to, Murray, about the UK, surprisingly enough. But in the US, has anybody made any inroads in actually taking this on? Because when, when you look at what... Um, statements made by Lauren Bobert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and they're very, very far from alone. There's a great many more of that ilk. It's beyond a question of thinking I agree or disagree with what this person says and what this person's policies are. It's just nuts. It, ha- it has absolutely no basis in reality whatsoever. Is that always going to put the politicians who deal in the reality-based universe at a disadvantage? Is there any way you can win an argument? Well, certainly the, the crazies attract more attention on social media and other platforms. Look, I think that there's a there's a difference between um, dealing with politicians with whom you have a difference of opinion mm. on policy issues, and that's all fair, and politicians who, you know, the, the election deniers, basically, people who say that Joe Biden did not win, that President Trump should be president right now. And you can't have a rational policy discussion with people like that because you're not starting from a, a level of, of sort of sanity and realism. And so it's one thing to say I disagree about how much funding should go to Medicare or Social Security and things like that. It's another whole thing to say to question the, the, the you know, whether Joe Biden is a legitimate president or not. I mean, you can go beyond that if you if you sort of read the, the social media outpourings of certain of their fans. It's not that they dispute that Joe Biden is a legitimate president. There are there's a non-small number of people who dispute that Joe Biden even exists. Um, they, they believe that the United States is currently being governed by a hologram or a robot or an android of some sort. I, I lose track of the details, to be honest, but there's a it's a thing. Sure. You know what? <laughs> I believe that now. I find that's going to be my new thing. Um, but I, I did want to follow that up, Murray, about universalizing this a little bit. Is it in the nature of political parties, especially ones which have existed for a while, as the Republican Party has in the United States and as the Conservative Party has in the United Kingdom, that just every so often it's all going to get a bit weird? As an organization, it's going to have a bit of an episode. Um, Yes, but what I find odd about this one with the Republicans is that normally I think it is quite structurally linked to something. So it's usually, so in the case of the Conservative Party in Britain at the moment, for example, they're all going a bit mad because they've been in power for too long. And actually they've Mm -hmm. got an entire generation of members of parliament who've never known anything but power. They've burned through lots of very good people. Ergo, the loonies are all that's left. And I think the Labour Party had its crisis with Jeremy Corbyn in a way in the mm-hmm. kind of forever internal wars. But that was because they'd been in opposition for too long and just could not find <laughs> a way back into government. And that drove them mad. Whereas the Republicans, they just lost a few years ago. That's it. And, and that, that's what I find, I think, quite worrying. You can't explain this in a structural manner of saying, actually, well, you know, this happened and this is why they've gone a bit mad. There's no obvious reason for them to have gone that mad apart from just Donald Trump is now king of the world. On that cheerful thought, uh, Mari and Lou, thank you for the moment. We will have more from you both later. Now, it is just three weeks to go until those midterm elections in the United States, and Monocle's Washington, D.C. correspondent Chris Chermack has been looking at the role that a weakening economy and rising inflation might play in the choices made by American voters. If we lose the, the foundational element of this country, 
our vote, our elections, then we lose everything. And we got very close to that on January 6th when people wanted to, to kill Mike Pence and overthrow the peaceful tra transition. This is not some throwaway line. And that's what I'm, I'm, I want people in Ohio to understand. This is the crowd that J.D. is running around with. The election deniers, the extremists. I find it interesting how preoccupied you are with this at a time when people can't afford groceries, people can't afford to walk down the streets safely. Let's focus on the significant issues right now, Tim. Thank you, candidates. This exchange was at a debate earlier this month between Ohio's Senate candidates, the Democrat Tim Ryan and Republican J.D. Vance. And it really sums up a particular dichotomy of the congressional election race right now. This push between extremism and protecting democracy on the one hand, and those classic kitchen table issues that dominate elections in more normal times. Over the summer, when it looked like inflation was easing back, opinion polls showed that most voters cared more about the state of democracy than they did about the economy. And Democrats looked like they just might hold on to Congress in this November's midterm elections. But now, as inflation has once again crept up in the fall, those concerns have flipped. Inflation is the bigger worry. And as a result, with just three weeks to go, Republicans have narrowed a number of races for the Senate and the House, no matter how extreme their candidates for office might be. The added problem for President Joe Biden is that he's actually pretty powerless at the moment. Much of the cause of America's rising prices stems from the war in Ukraine and the aftermath of the global pandemic, both factors that are largely outside of U.S. control. At the International Monetary Fund and World Bank's annual meetings in Washington last week, the mood, it has to be said, was pretty gloomy. The three largest economies, the United States, China, and the Euro area, will continue to stall. In short, the worst is yet to come, and for many people, 2023 will feel like a recession. This was the main takeaway from the IMF's chief economist, Pierre-Olivier Gourachat. President Joe Biden himself has, of course, tried to take a more optimistic line, insisting that the U.S. will avoid a serious recession in an interview with CNN on the same day as the IMF's bleak assessment. I don't think there will be a recession. If it is, it'll be a very slight recession. Think about what's happened. We have done more, we're in a better position than any other major country in the world, economically and politically. Big recession or slight recession, this certainly is not the position Democrats will have wanted to be in just three weeks out from midterm congressional elections. And even more troubling for Joe Biden, at least from an electoral standpoint, is that the appropriate response right now isn't really something that's going to win you too many votes. Mark Zandi, chief economist of Moody's Analytics, told me that basically the Biden administration shouldn't be doing anything. Well, I don't think fiscal policy plays a role in the United States at this point. A lot of fiscal policy uh, was done back in 2021 through earlier this year, but there's not going to be any policymaking here going forward. Even more awkward in an election year is that the best policies are basically ones that slow down the economy. The Federal Reserve is doing what it's supposed to by raising interest rates to push down inflation. Of course, monetary policy is a headwind to growth, but so is fiscal policy. It is also a headwind to growth. So that both are working together to slow the growth rate in the economy, which is obviously very important to getting inflation back down 
to something we all feel more comfortable with. Doesn't sound too hard, right? Well, as we learned from the UK experience, they certainly can make a mistake. So, you know, avoiding mistakes, the whole do no harm, that's harder to do than it sounds. Okay, so Joe Biden, unlike UK Prime Minister Liz Truss, gets some credit for not making a mistake. And after the big US stimulus spending spree that Zandi mentioned from back in 2021, Biden also gets some credit for taking steps that could actually help lower prices further down the line. Over the summer, Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act, a package of measures that were designed to cut the cost of clean energy and health care. Here's Mark Zandi one more time. You know, it really does three things. One is bring down prescription drug costs. Two is to help low-income households afford health care for a time. But three, and most importantly, long run, it's the first real attempt at addressing climate change. And that that should, all else being equal, be disinflationary, but that's in the long run, not in the here and now. So that piece of legislation really isn't playing much of a role in influencing inflation, certainly not in the immediate future. The problem is that these kinds of long-term fixes are a pretty tough sell for voters. Voters want to see results now, not 10 years from now especially Republican voters. Republicans in this cycle not only are more likely to say that inflation is their top concern, they're even likely to feel inflation more than Democrats do. Republicans are far more likely than Democrats to say that they have uh, felt um, the impact of high inflation in their own life and have felt it a lot. This is Kathy Frankovic with the polling group YouGov. She says the reason for this kind of split is pretty simple. Economic issues have become politicized in a way they might not have been 30 or 40 years ago. So if you ask people about the state of the economy, there are usually nowadays huge party differences. Every time there's a change of administrations, you can look at a survey done within two weeks of each other. And you have a situation where people are asked to talk about the state of the economy. Is it getting better, getting worse? It's about the same. Um, Very closely related to the party of the president. And then the party of the president changes. And people just also change with that. You could think the economy is getting better if you're a Republican and Trump is in office. And once Biden comes into office, you change your opinion. The sense of the country just turns around. So the upshot for this year's midterm elections, with Biden in the White House, is that Republicans are more downcast and tend to see the economy and inflation as their top concern, while Democrats have a whole host of issues that concern them. Abortion, the state of democracy, health care, climate change. All of that is playing a role alongside inflation and the economy. But maybe the biggest problem for Joe Biden is those all-important swing voters, the independents. Polls show they're also more concerned about inflation, and they tend to see Republicans as better managers of the economy than Democrats, whether politicians can really do anything about inflation or not. For Monocle in Washington, I'm Chris Chermack. Thank you, Chris. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Still with me are Marie Leconte and Lou Lukens. Now, a few months ago, the voters of Australia unloaded a tired, rancorous and inept Conservative government and turned power over to a Labour Party led by a stolid, arguably even somewhat dull, centre-leftish gradualist at least capable of putting on his own shoes without burning his house down. Who knows? Maybe it will catch on. New Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has accordingly been undoing 
some of what was done by his predecessor, Scott Morrison, among which is rescinding Australia's recognition of West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. The really fun thing about this brouhaha is the implicit assumption that literally anybody between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean shoreline cares what Australia thinks about anything. Um, Lou, thinking with your former diplomat's hat on, and listeners, it is a literal hat. He's wearing it right now. It has former diplomat written across the front of it. Is this actually that big a deal? Well, I mean, the, the it's not as if Australia was on the brink of physically moving its embassy, right? They had said they we would move the We had literally no intention of doing yeah, it. They, they, yeah. they said they would move the embassy when peace finally came to the region. Like <laughs> Don't hold so, your breath, etc. So, exactly. So, um, uh, you know, it, it was a symbolic statement to begin with. This is also a symbolic statement reversing the previous symbolic statement, but there's very little practical effect to either of them. Um, just to follow that up, though, was it, though, a big whoop when the United States did it? Because the United States, along with Kosovo, Guatemala and Honduras, uh, is one of just four countries which has physically moved its embassy to Jerusalem. Look, I mean, American presidents had talked about doing this for a long time. Donald Trump, to his credit, was the first one to actually do it. Um, and I think it did. It sort of opened um, – it, it gave – it gives other countries, I think, uh, sort of freedom and confidence to make a similar move if they so choose. I think the reality is that most embassies are happy to stay put in Tel Aviv. It's a much, I think, more livable closer city to the beach. and closer to the beach. And, <laughs> and, and plus, all the infrastructure is there. So, um, I mean, the U.S. has been sort of jumping through hoops trying to figure out how to and, – and by the way, the U.S. embassy still largely operates from Tel Aviv. Mm. There's a small office opened in Jerusalem. So, it, again, it, it, it's a symbolic move more than really a practical one. I mean, Mari, with all, with all due recognition that people tend to get a bit hypersensitive around this particular situation, is this particular aspect of this particular situation arguably a bit silly? Because whether you like Israel or not, Jerusalem is its capital. That's just a statement of fact. It is. I, I do have to admit I'm struggling to get exercised one way or the other um, on the specific location for the embassies. And it is obviously, you know, like symbolic and as with any sort of, you know, conflict that drags on and on and on, anything that can be taken as symbolic will be, you know, mm. blown out of proportion. But, no, but honestly, I'm not, you know, I'm not convinced actually anyone on the ground actually cares that much about it either. So it's not even, you know, the, the people actually involved in this. I'm not convinced. I, I, um, I mean, I, I mean, unbelievably I'm, strong thoughts or I'm, feelings. I'm absolutely convinced that nobody, as I said, cares whether Australia does it or not. But just to follow that up, Mari, this has become a thing like literally every goddamn thing on earth, which has become a, a front line in, in the culture war. And it, it is hard to avoid noticing when you look at the countries which either do this or are considering doing it or are saying they will do it. And at the moment, those countries include Brazil, Hungary, Serbia and Rwanda, uh, about the leaderships of which you can make certain generalizations. It's, it's become another means of like right wing trolling, hasn't it? Saying we'll move our capital to Jerusalem. It is what it's, I mean, depending on how you see it, either virtue or vice signalling. Um, I believe Liz Truss actually potentially maybe talked about doing it as well. So again, it, it feels like something where you won't actually have to do anything at any point really in the near future, but it sends a message that you even just said it. So that's quite just quite handy. Uh, and just finally on this, uh, Lou, and you have already partially answered this question, Australia's Foreign Minister, Senator Penny Wong, um, 
did make mention of the previous provision, which I guess is still the operable provision that Australia will move its embassy pending the final status two-state solution. So do you want to take a wild guess as to what year this might actually occur? Uh, I'll be long gone when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Even a sprightly young fellow former <laughs> diplomat such as yourself, yes. really? What a cheerful thought. But finally, uh, on today's show, to a hardy perennial of the 21st century discourse, the return whence they came or not of historical artefacts which their more recent owners may have acquired through murky means. A couple of years back, France returned to Algeria, the skulls of 24 Algerians killed during the 19th century as part of Algeria's long struggle against French colonisers. As if by way of demonstrating that these things are rarely straightforward, it has now emerged that only six of the skulls belonged to bona fide resistance fighters, of the rest some belonged to imprisoned criminals, and at least three to Algeria. Algerians who in fact served with the French army. Um, Murray, here's a hot take for you. Does this in fact reinforce uh, the truth that these things are all really basically of symbolic value and it's not really about the objects but what people have attached to them? Oh yes, sure. But then I would argue that that's not inherently a bad thing or Mm. that symbols are not inherently meaningless just by virtue of being symbols, I think, as opposed to, again, people just caring about the physical objects. But yeah, I mean, I I do still find, you know, skulls specifically, and I think I'm going to talk about it in a bit. So objects I can sort of get, but there is something quite physical about skulls, literally human skulls, you know, moving from one Mm. country to the next. So no, it's been a a very odd story to follow. I I mean, there's been one recent one, which was possibly even stranger and more kind of visceral, possibly because it was more recent than than the skull, which was, of course, the return of uh, Patrick Lumumba's surviving tooth to the Democratic Republic of Congo by the Belgians, who had been uh, harbouring the last remnants uh, of the assassinated Congolese Prime Minister for all that time. But again, does, does a restoration of that sort, do you think it does improve relations between the two countries involved? Um, isn't it a case of if the demand has been made at any point, then refusing that demand will probably make the relationship worse? Mm. Um, which, you know, I, I would argue, and I'm not the diplomat on this panel, but <laughs> I, I'm guessing that actually a lot of diplomacy is about keeping things as they are and trying not to make them worse, probably well, how I would see it. Uh, Lou, you are the diplomat on this panel. Um, do you see these restitutions as important in actually building relationships between nations, or is it more usually a means by which somebody can make domestic political capital at home by saying, look, I have prized this artefact, which possibly none of you cared all that much about this time last year, back from the hands of the former coloniser. Yeah, I mean, all of the above. There's so many levels to this discussion. I mean, as, as Marie said, if, if a country has asked for something back and a country, then the country that is now in possession of these goods says no, then that obviously causes a diplomatic rift. If, if um, you know, but so... And it's important to also look at where these, how these things came into the possession mm. of where they are in the first place. Were they sold? Were they stolen? Um, but there is, you know, there's real value, I think, in in having goods from around the world in different museums and locations around the world, so that a school kid in London can see what African art and statues and things look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, the extreme of this argument is that you have to take everything that was taken from anywhere and ship it back from whence it came, as you, as you said in the beginning. And I, and I think that's a very blunt instrument for dealing with this. But obviously there are some 
specific items in this in this discussion that are of more important symbolic value. And if a if a host country says we want X, Y, or Z back, um, I think it's pretty hard to say no. I mean, Murray, this has been uh, a bit of a recurring theme. We did do an entire program on the Foreign Desk about the Benin Bronzes, which was genuinely fascinating for me, at least, coming to this as somebody who's not entirely sure what they think about it. But have we actually arrived, or should we have arrived by now, at any hard and fast rules that you can apply to every case, or is it unimaginable that such hard and fast rules could ever exist, which is why there's always going to be a row? Uh, well, I have a solution that I would like to propose to the world. Please. Um, thank you. But I think basically yeah, stuff should get sent back. If a country asks for it, it should get sent back, no questions asked. However, I think um, those items should be required to travel quite a lot. So actually, as Lee was saying, people get to experience them all across the world. So in the way that paintings, for example, travel, mm-hmm. you know, paintings go on holiday all the time. Like most museum exhibitions are paintings and artworks from around the world, from different museums. We should do the same with like, random stuff. Send the Horniman Museum walrus, you know, around. <laughs> Travelling around the UK, send it to everywhere else. So yeah, I think uh, I, I do like the idea, I think, of saying actually as the country where, you know, this artwork, this thing... Uh, is from we deserve to decide where you know where it should be going, where it should stay at its kind of forever home. But also, I think that again, they should be sent on jollies after that. Well, just finally, then to bring to bring this back to possibly the most famous unresolved of these cases, and I did for the magazine uh, chair a debate on this, which you can read on our website if you subscribe to Monocle Magazine, and if you haven't already, then what? are you doing um the elgin marbles lou i will ask you first that this sort of vast trove of greek statuary which has been housed at the british museum for some time and a bone of contention ever since should the uk send it all back to greece or not and Greece wants it back? Oh, Greece absolutely wants it back. Greece has actually <laughs> built an entire museum with, like, display cases and stuff in place for the go. marbles to be yeah. inserted in upon their return. Yeah, they should go back. Okay, that was that was surprisingly brisk and uncontroversial. Um, Mari, what do you think? Oh, obviously, same, especially because I love that museum. It is the pettiest thing any country has ever done. Like, <laughs> look, look at that empty space where the marbles should be. <laughs> uh, you're a big fan of, of, of just basic passive aggression in modern diplomacy, then? I am. Okay. Well, there's, I, there's lots of that in diplomacy. <laughs> I, I, I would think, I, I think we've basically solved that problem, then. I think that's the first time we've ever actually literally solved the problem. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, we, we, had a, we had a lash at peace in the Middle East earlier in the show. Couldn't quite land that one. But the organ marbles, we've done it. Um, <laughs> so, Lou Lukens and Mari Leconte, thank you both for joining us. Thanks also to Chris Chermack, who we heard from earlier. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. I'm Andrew Mullet here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>